1: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi,
0: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. I do miss
2: putting a magazine together. I miss working with photographers on editorial stories, but I don't feel it's relevant. I don't, I don't feel it's the proper tool to communicate fashion today. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Fabien Baron talks about his career as an art director and about the decline of fashion magazines. I mean, with all my clients, we don't talk about the page that's going to go in vogue. We talk about like the Instagram
0: post. creative director is a catch-all job description. In the case of Fabian Barron, it doesn't catch all that he has done in his illustrious career. He's designed some of the world's biggest and most prestigious publications. He's designed books and perfume bottles and furniture. He's shot and directed films. He's created some of the most memorable ad campaigns of the last 40 years for clients including Calvin Klein and Dior and Balenciaga. And he's created singular, groundbreaking looks for Harper's Bazaar, Vogue Italia, and Interview. Vanity Fair once called him the most sought-after creative director in the world. And indeed he is. Today, he joins me on Zoom from Paris, France. Fabian Barron, welcome to Design Matters. Bonjour. Bonjour. (laughs) You have such a lovely voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Fabian, the photographer Glenn Lutchford has insisted that you are the Elvis Presley of graphic design. Oh, my God. And I'm wondering if you know why he stated that.
2: Uh, No, I don't know. I'm sorry, I don't.
0: <laughs> you don't? Do you know that he even said it?
2: Well, no, I know Glenn quite well. I mean, uh, from those days, the back days, in, when I was at Opera's Bazaar, and um, I hired him to to work on the magazine and to do some stories. And there was one story actually that he did that I really liked. He did with Cat Moss going around the city and Forty Second Street, and just like taking very, like, r- reportage type of pictures that were, like, really amazing. That's how I met with Glenn.
0: Yeah, maybe it's the uh, breakthrough, um, groundbreaking part that he was referring to. Fabian, your father, Mark Baron, was a legendary art director in Paris. He worked mainly with two publications. He was the founding art director of the left-wing daily Liberation and the sports daily L'Equipe. Is it true that you were a newspaper delivery boy for Liberation? Well, not a delivery
2: boy, but, uh, you know, I worked under my father. So I was really the go-to guy to do anything in at the magazine. It would be doing at the time like photo stats, which were like, you know, taking the, the pictures and blow them up different sizes. Yeah, I you was know, a stat like,
0: girl at my student newspaper oh, in college. Oh, really?
2: Okay. <laughs> yes. Good. So yes. I, I used to do that. And I used to do like mechanicals and like start kind of like, you know, like putting all the, the mechanics of the, the mechanical part of the magazine like on pages, you know, and I was doing a lot of letter sets. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, um, yeah, I still do yeah, them I, just, as,
0: I, just for fun.
2: <laughs> I, I used to be really good at it. I used to be really good because you had to pick the size. You couldn't be like, you had to be 100%. So I used to be really good at it. I could type something like exactly to the lengths I want in the size of, by just guessing. So it was a fun game.
0: Knowing that about you now, I could see how that training helped in the creation of some of your typographic constructions. You know, there is a sort of puzzling to them and placing them all together in a way that if I don't think you knew how to do that by hand, you wouldn't be able to do it on the computer.
2: Yes. Actually, the first time I did this kind of graphics, I did it with a Xerox machine. So, uh, and that was really Italian Vogue at the time, like everything, we didn't have computers or anything. So we had to work everything kind of like manually. So I used to take the font and use the Xerox machine and blow them up on the Xerox machine and like collage the pieces by cutting them out, basically.
0: You said that your father was super bright, super smart, and very educated. But I also understand that he was quite hard on you in your early days as a designer. In what way?
2: I guess he wanted me to learn and learn the proper way, but also learn the hard way. Because he wanted to make sure this is something I was going to do and something I was going to to love. And, uh, and you know, like, um, and when it's hard... And you're still in love, that means it sticks, right? So I guess uh, it was really tough in the way that we, we used to work. I was responsible for everything. everything. Every time there was a mistake, it was me, even though it was not me. So he just wanted me to be responsible for everything. So it was quite like not very gentle, let's say. And I guess at the time, you know, like it was not like it is now. Like now it's, you have to be extremely gentle with people. And you have to be, like, extremely polite, extremely proper. He was not like that. with me, at least.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I read that your father felt that the objective of graphic design was to get the reader involved with the editorial content of the publication. And you talk about this quite a lot. But at the time, you were also reading Francine Crescent's French Vogue, and you were enthralled by the photography of Helmut Newton and Guy Bourdin. Did you feel that that was in conflict with what your dad was teaching you?
2: Uh, no, actually, I didn't feel I was in conflict. I think it was good, like a proper balance. I think like his teaching was quite journalistic. It was quite like classic journalism. And at the same time, I felt like having access to magazine, like, French Vogue and, you know, like, and all these photographers and looking at those visuals, I was really intrigued how you would create such visuals. So it was something that I was really, like, very, like, looking after, like, almost like, you know, like I would devour those magazines when they would show up in the house um, because they were like, you know, the visuals were exceptional and uh, I really had no idea you would put this type of visuals together, how you would create them. I mean, the photography part and after like how you would like come up with those ideas, those concepts and everything. So it was like really like um, I was looking at that in the extremely intrigued. At the same time, what was important at the time, especially in newspapers, to pass the information the proper way and, you know, like to make sure like the reader would understand what you're trying to say.
0: After a gigantic fight, I understand you left home and his supervision and you moved into your own apartment. And at that point, you stated that he was still your hero and you still looked up to him, but it took years before you were both fully reconciled. What did you fight about?
2: Um, I don't remember. I don't remember what the fight was about, but I know that I left that day. I have really, I don't recall at all. I mean, it's isn't it the case? Most of the time you don't remember. What the fight is about, what you remember is like, did I leave or didn't, didn't I leave? Yes, I did. <laughs> I definitely left and it was a while before, like, you know, not that long either because, you know, I liked him and he liked me. I was quite upset. I was not so happy about it, to be honest. It's not a good memory, that part, but it was time for me to go. I mean, some kids, they leave their parents nicely and some don't leave their parents nicely.
0: Ultimately, you've said that the relationship with your father gave you a sense of how to treat people. Yes. What what do you feel that he most taught you in that regard?
2: I think what he really gave me is a good sense of what this job was about. A good sense of being a deep down, you have to remain a journalist to a certain degree. In anything you do, you have to make it's got to make sense, it's got to be understood, and it's got to be clear. But also, I think he gave me a discipline and a work ethic that I don't think I would have gotten if he was not through him. The level of discipline in which I work is quite surprising for some people. I've heard it. I'm very um, keen and it's it's a search to perfection into kind of like trying to really find that place which is difficult to find that really i think like perfection is is quite a good word even though you have understood that you cannot obtain perfection but you can come close to it but and it is because you can't obtain it that you continue to search for it but, you know, like that puts you into a certain category of people that you understand that this becomes your life and that you're going to be a professional about it, a little bit like an athlete. You know, like I'd do anything to make it right, basically. Uh, just like an athlete would wake up at four o'clock in the morning if they want, need to train. Right. So I'm, I'm very similar. I, I'm ready to do anything to make this Right. So part of why I get results is because of that discipline. I think if I wouldn't have that discipline, I wouldn't have done that many things. I would have been very hesitant into trying new mediums. And I think it's that rigor, but also that need and that search to perfection that allowed me to experiment and to try new medium quite easily without hesitation.
0: You attended arts appliques in Paris for a year before dropping out. What made you decide to leave school at that point?
2: I felt I was wasting my time. I knew pretty much what I wanted to do. And I don't know if I wanted to be an art director because my dad was an art director and I wanted to show him that I'd be a better art director than him. Or if it was... Because I really knew uh, the calling. So, I mean, that one I still cannot answer, really. But I knew what I wanted to do. That's for sure. So, knowing so clearly what I wanted to do, I didn't want it to waste my time. So, even though I had a good time uh, that year and I, I had very good friends and it was like kind of, lovely to be at school and to experiment different experiences and do different work because like they, apply, they, they teach you graphics photography uh, textile you know drawing painting modeling you know like they do so many different things that you know and that was quite you know interesting I didn't feel I needed to do it I, I needed to work right away I was already, even with my father, helping him doing certain things. So I felt like, you know, like I'm going to do this for a couple of years. I'm going to waste my time and as well go to work and like go at it right away and really learn the real job that I want to do.
0: You also got your first camera when you were 17 years old, and you've stated that while art direction is how you make your living, photography remains your personal love. (laughs) Yes. What motivated you to become a professional creative director versus becoming a professional photographer at that time in your life?
2: I guess that's my father. You know, I think Um, my father would have been an architect. I probably would have said, like, I want to be an architect. I I think that's what it is because, you know, right now you would tell me, would you like to be an architect? I would say, yes. I mean, there's so many things I would like to be. And, And I think like the mediums of anything that touches with art in general, they kind of like all kind of overlap. I learned throughout the years and experimenting with different mediums that actually the most important thing is not, you know, the medium itself, it's more the point of view that you have and how you want to express it. And certain mediums are easier to express your point of view than others. So the photography was something that I felt really close to myself, probably because of those French photographers, the Guy Bourdin, the Newton that I was looking at. And actually the first time I got my camera, the things that I was doing is I was going with my sister around, like, trying to do, like, a keyboard and picture, yeah, it, like, like <laughs> I would make a pose in something <laughs> very similar. And like, I would do pictures like that with saturated colors. And uh, I didn't have a flash, so it didn't work perfectly. But I was experimenting and wanted, like, I was really intrigued by the imagery side of magazines, rather than the journalistic side of magazines. So my my training was very being very journalistic. There was this other side that actually was not taught by my dad. That was the the whole process of image making. And that started by taking pictures for myself. And then as I went along, it got more and more, I got involved on the art directing side of making an image. Then I became the art director that was good with type and good with images. So there was a a definite conflict because of the photographers and the level of photographers I I ended up working on later on for me to also be a photographer. There was kind of like a conflict of interest to some degree. Like, why these guys being on set with us? he's seeing everything we do and then he's going to go take pictures and maybe he's going to take pictures like us so there was Mm. this kind of conflict going on and I wanted to be really respectful of that so I never really involved myself as a photographer in my early years as an art director it's much, much, much later on that I decided oh, okay, but maybe I should do a story And that step was a really hard step for me to take. Why? Because of what I just told you, like the conflict, that conflict of interest. I was afraid that photographers would start seeing me as, you know, a competition rather than seeing me as someone helping them. Did you find that that was the case? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) <laughs> no, it was not. It was all in my head, I guess. So I yeah. was re- I, So in the meantime, I did a lot of personal work. That's why, I've, I've, yeah. you know, I've, I put myself doing like, you know, landscape photography and start right. doing work of, you know, that was not fashion related. And it was like at the same time. I mean, like it just happened to be that way. I think it was good because it allowed me to experiment something else. Something that was not fashion, something that was not related to a model and related to uh, style
0: yeah, but, well you've said that when I mean, you are confronted with restrictions, you sometimes do your best work, and so maybe this restriction of not photogra- not doing photography in fashion gave you this opportunity to explore something that you wouldn't have otherwise
2: yes, i'm also forced myself into doing the step and repeat, meaning like uh, taking a picture and going over and taking the same picture, same picture, Mm. same picture, and kind of trying to look for that perfection of it and to see like the difference between each one of them.
0: So I would say that your ocean pictures certainly do that.
2: They certainly do that. And they've been going on since 1983. And I still catch myself doing some, some, sometimes.
0: In 1982, a girl you knew from New York came to visit you in Paris and you ended up falling in love. You then decided to move with her back to New York. So you sold your motorcycle, you sublet your apartment, and with only $300 in your pocket, you moved to New York City. Was living Was living in New York something you had always hoped to do, or was this a spontaneous decision after falling in love?
2: The way I grew up in France. I mean, actually, the way most kids my age grew up in France, they were quite Americanized in many ways. Like, you know, the music was coming from the States and from London. The movies were all coming from America. The culture was very much an American culture. And anything that was new was coming from there. So I felt I was not, you know, when you're not part, you know, in in the courtyard with the other kids playing, I felt I was in the other courtyard. You know, basically, are uh, getting the, the scraps from the yeah. good courtyard. Where, you know, like, so so I. <laughs> oh thought, yes, like, I
0: know that feeling well.
2: <laughs> I thought it was much better to just check it out in the U.S., especially New York. There was like this aura around it around the, the New York at that time, like in the 80s. That was really oh, yeah. uh, that was really amazing. And I just wanted to go there.
0: Yeah. I'm a native New Yorker, but I didn't move to Manhattan until 1983. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm about a year or so behind you. And um, New York at that point seemed to be sort of this mystical, magical place. Aside from your girlfriend, you knew only one person in New York, the great Véronique Vienne. She's also been on the show, uh, the art director at the time from Women's Wear Daily. How did she help you? Did she help you sort of get settled in in the magazine community? Uh,
2: what, What happened is actually I was freelancing in this magazine in France, this fashion magazine in France. And... Véronique Vienne was asked to come and redesign the magazine. And uh, when she came, she had a, you know, graphic formula. And, you know, right away, I kind of like, you know, attacked her and like, you know, like worked with her like really rapidly and tried to show, show my skill. And like she, she was really impressed that I would understand so quickly what she wanted to do. We got on on the right foot, but rapidly I told her, you know, like, I really want to come to New York. I really want to come to New York. Can I come to New York? You know, so I bugged her to come to New York. And to, it, she basically invited me. I mean, she had very little choice. I was like relentless. Like, I got to come. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what a surprise.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so she invited me even though she was about to move to California. And she invited me and I stayed with her and I worked at Women's Wear Delhi and I was kind of like an intern there and I stayed two months. And then I went back to France. Uh, in the meantime, during my time in New York, I met this, this girl that you're mentioning. And a year later, she showed up in Paris. And that's when I, decide, I decided, oh, let's, let's go back to New York and check it out. And I went back and then I just knew her and her partner at the time uh, called him and hoped. At $300, I called him up and, you know, Veronique Vienne was already in San Francisco. So she was not part of of this, but like he basically organized a meeting for me uh, with a couple of people in New York. But one of the meetings was actually with Alex Lieberman. Yes. So, which was like a, a great meeting. And I knew who he was. I was very impressed by who he was and at, and at the meeting. And um, when when I came see him, uh, at the time, he was the, on the Vogue floor. Um, he had an office there. You know, like we met and he, sp- he spoke French right away. He said, let's, on parle français. Sera plus facile. And he was right, it, because my English at the time, let me tell you, was not that good. So we spoke in French, and he was very fond of French people, and very f- fond of my work, because I showed him my uh, portfolio at the time. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, I would like to be, become an art director. I would like to work in magazines. You know, I'd love to work at Condé Nast. And and he said, uh, well, have you heard of this magazine? We're starting this new magazine. It's called Vanity Fair. I, You know, like, it would be very nice if you uh, want to meet with the art director and see if you guys get along. So he sent me to, at the time, the art director was Lloyd Ziff, and uh, I met with him, and we talked, and he liked me very much, and... Logically at the job. But then I got a phone call from Alex Lieberman and said, Well, Lloyd Ziff is not going to stay with us any longer, so the Vanity Fair gig is not going to happen. Don't disappear. I'm going to find you something, uh, you know, like you got to stick around here. I'm going to find you something else in the meantime. And then he put me at Self Magazine.
0: Yeah. So I, I graduated college in 1983, and in 1982, Vanity Fair had been relaunched. And I thought it was the most glorious magazine in recent history. Just the idea that this was a beautiful arts and literary magazine, that David Hockney's socks and feet were put on the cover. Uh, Philip Roth was on the cover. Um, I desperately wanted to work at Vanity Fair as well. And being a a very young designer coming from a, a state school in New York, I knew the chances were very slim. But I sent my portfolio into Condé Nast as well. This is 1983, so this is a year later after you. And I got a call back from Charles Churchward, who was then the art director.
2: That's that's correct, that's (laughs) correct,
0: yes. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: I didn't meet with Charles, though I met with Human Resources and the Human Resources woman did not like me, so I didn't get the job, but the idea that the art director at the time, you know, thought there was something in my portfolio really, really buoyed me for quite a long time. Um, So it's so funny how life has its circuitous turns. One thing I didn't know about you at all and had no idea. um, Fabian, I read that your first job in New York was actually at Johnson & Johnson, Working on a new design for their internal magazine. I was shocked when I learned this. So how did did that happen?
2: That's that's through my friend, uh, Carliman Hope, who gave that job to me. He said, oh, I I heard like Johnson & Johnson, they're trying to do an internal magazine and they need the design. And I did, you know, like the zero for them. And it was great. It was like paid in cash.
0: Nice. Nice. Speaking of yes. being paid in cash, after looking at your portfolio, didn't Alexander Lieberman love your photography so much that he ended up buying yes, $3,000 yes, $3, worth of photography f- of the Brooklyn Bridge? Yes. Tell, tell us oh about my God. that.
2: It, during that meeting also, like, you know, there were like, you know, all the work I'd done in France in magazine, but there was also like the pictures I'd taken, right. you know, myself and some of them in New York. And he saw these Broken Bridge pictures and they were doing an article in House and Garden on the Broken Bridge. And I think it was for the Centennial or something like that at the time. I don't know exactly. Probably, it got to be for that. But like, I remember, like, you know, they said, oh, you got to go see Rochelle Ludell. She works at House and Garden. Let me give her a ring and you got to go to see her and show her those pictures. So I went to see Rochelle Udell. She was at House and Garden, and she looked at the pictures and she said, oh, these are lovely. We, can we keep them for a little bit? Then they took like four or five pictures. And then, you know, I get a phone call from condena saying like, oh, actually, like the, the pictures that uh, they're going to be running. Oh, Really? Yeah. And they paid like $3,000. And, you know, I was like, you must be kidding. I, I couldn't believe. <laughs> so basically, that was my my first experience as a photographer working for a publication in America.
0: And then when you went to Self, you also worked with Rochelle Udell. Is that correct?
2: She also worked for the magazine. She became a little bit like a, a miniature uh, Alex Lieberman. She was working in I think GQ, she had Self Magazine. I think she was also up at Mademoiselle. Yeah. She was kind of like, like Alex Lieberman's right hand. Yeah. And she would come in and look over all the pages. And then Lieberman would come in and look at the pages. And we had to make sure like everything was well organized, like each picture was supposed to be from this side which was very small, to a double-page side. And then you would play with things.
0: Incredible.
2: It was really like my time at Self Magazine and GQ, working with Mary Shanahan as the art director at GQ, and my time at Self Magazine really, like, couldn't wait for these moments where Lieberman would show up and Rochelle would show up, kind of like shuffling everything around. Some part of it probably... Just to shuffle. And part of it to make more sense of the stories, to I I learned so much about like what you can do with a story. Like how you can with editing, with sizing, with putting things one way and another, why would that be better? And that to me, like tied it up so nicely with all the things that I learned from my dad about. The journalistic side of how you put something together so it's complete, so it makes sense, so there's a logic to it, but there's also an artistry about it. When I was there at Self, and, you know, it's not like Self was a fantastic magazine, that's when I really, like, said, wow, I'm really liking this. This, I can, I, I was eating it up like there was no tomorrow. And I loved it. I loved it. And like when Alex would come, you know, like some of the designers would put pages together. And like, you know, I was the smaller guy in the corner. And I would think like, I wonder how Lieberman's going to change that. Maybe he's going to do this. Maybe he's going to do that. Maybe he's going to. It was really like intriguing to see him come and change everything around.
0: What an education.
2: The most intriguing part was that every time he was right. He was right. People were so upset. You have no idea. The designers were like crying over, like you know, not crying literally, but like you know, like so upset that the layouts were changed and everything. And I was thinking, but he's right. And we had arguments. Had arguments with some of the staff. I remember, like, but it's much better. It it makes sense now. It makes sense. The story's better, and people like they get like really like attached to their own work. I
0: guess. Yeah. What a magnificent thing to be able to witness and to learn and be part of. Alex moved you to GQ, and you mentioned that you worked with art director Mary Shanahan. And I read that she, you've said that she helped you clearly understand how an image can function. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that means. And, and what she taught you?
2: Well, I, I think she was the one who just put the period on top of the eye um, by saying a few things, like pushing this idea of the point of view, that everything comes down to a point of view. Everything comes down to a vision and to a way to express that vision in a very simple manner. And I think that I learned that from her. And she was very, very definite about that. Mm-hmm. That, I think, like, really, like, I felt like, oh, I've completed a circle here. Like, I have the understanding of, like, how to pass information in a proper way, in a practical way from my father and being a journalist. I understood the artistry and the shuffling and what you can do with an image and how you can say something in this way if you make the image this size or in this way if you make the, the image this size a little bit like the complete approach to the build-up of a magazine. But then I learned from Mary that, oh, this is great, but what is it that is inside the image? And what is that point of view? And how to pass on that information as an art director into the photographer so that point of view is palatable, relevant, and on point. And after that, I felt like, ooh, I can be an art director. Peter and <laughs> your stripes,
0: <laughs>
2: and and then I left Condenas. I know, I know. <laughs> and then and then Lieberman was really pissed. <laughs>
0: So after a year and a half at GQ, Betsy Carter, the former editor of Esquire and the newly minted editor of a brand new magazine called New York Woman, invited you to become the founding art director. And I remember when the magazine first came out, I actually had a friend who worked there as a copy editor. And there was so much excitement about the launch. And I read that you had many epic battles over the tone of the magazine. You wanted it to be cool and clean, and they wanted it to be warm and cozy, which seemed very odd for a a New York woman type magazine. How did you manage, looking back on it, how would you describe that time?
2: Well, wow, yes, I remember now you mentioning that. Yes, that's true. I had a couple of uh, battles with some of the stuff. But not with Betsy, really, because I think Betsy understood. Uh, You know, like, it was late 80s, late 80s, New York City. Come on, like at that time the city was the coolest. Oh uh, yeah. It was the place it was the center of the world I and mean, if anything and anything that was happening was happening in New York. So of course I wanted the best photographers. Of course I wanted, you know, like the thing to be the coolest thing possible. Yes, there was. It was American Express. <laughs> was doing the magazine. They so were there the was publishers, yeah. The publisher was a bit corporate, let's say, and, but we, w- we went against that. We, I think, now yes, we, I definitely wanted the magazine to be cool, to be like, you know, uh, and quite fashiony at the time. I remember the f- that's the first time I worked with Peter Lindbergh was at New York Woman. And that's the first time actually Peter Lindbergh uh, worked in America. And then other photographers like Patrick de Marchelier worked there, like Denis Peel, uh, Max Vaducol, uh, Jean-François Lepage, you know, Jean-Jacques Cast, you know, photographers at the time that were working for Franca Sozzani, uh, that were working in Europe, m- more actually European photographers, strangely enough. Because also, like, Mr. Lieberman was not happy he had left Condé Nast. He had, he said he had plans for me and I didn't want it to wait for those plans. And it was really upset. He was really upset. And I couldn't use any of the photographers that were working for Condé Nast. So I had to go in Europe and get the photographers from Europe, you know, like the cool ones. Right. So that was a battle and I was winning that battle. And it was really cool. Like I was bringing like all these new interesting photographers and the magazine got noticed.
0: The magazine was, was stunning. I have been waiting to ask you this question for 30-something years. The logo, New York woman, very long, elegant, uh, serif face. The W in woman was larger than the rest of the letters and mm-hmm. often in color. On the third stroke of the W, the ascender was cut off.
2: Huh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so... Tell me what the decision was about that. So, I'll Uh, draw it. To remind you of something I've been obsessing about for... Oh,
2: my God. I don't even know what you're talking uh, about.
0: I know know you're not. I know you're not. Okay. So, here you go. See? Yes. See? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I do this? backwards.
2: There. The last one was... Yeah,
0: there was no tail. I think that was... The ascender... I, I, it was on every issue, so it was intentional. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, it was in part of the logo. That was the only letter I've been obsessing
0: that was, about this. You have been thinking about I don't it.
2: think that was the only letter that was doing that.
0: The M must have gone... the logo, it was. The
2: M must have got that way, too, no? Uh, let's see. And the N as
0: well, Double no? Check. I'm looking on, online to see. Mm-mm. No? Nope, just that pesky little leg on the W.
2: Well, I don't know um, why. Listen, I have no idea why. The, I, I, the
0: W and and the W in New also didn't have it, but it was slightly connected to the Y, ascend, the Ascender and the Y yes. in York. Look at it and tell me because I, I need I to remember, understand your thinking.
2: I remember clearly that I didn't like the fact like New York was written that big and that the, the name was New York Woman. It was too long. And I wanted to make New York small inside the woman.
0: Mm. I wanted that to be the logo. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
1: Visit slack.com to get started. You mentioned crossing Alexander
0: Lieberman, and you said that he was very upset that you left. He told you that he had big plans for you. He was cross that you left, but he was really crossed later, really crossed when you turned down the job to work. At American Vogue. So I guess that he revealed his big plan.
2: <laughs> yes, because but when I left, he was crossed indeed. But he always said to me that the best way to move up in Condenast is to leave Condenast and to come back to Condenast. And that's what I told him when I left for New York Woman. <laughs> but remember, Mr. Lieberman, you told me that the best way to go up in Condenast was to leave Condenast and come back. So maybe I'll come back. And that was that. That was my conversation with him. But in the meantime, he really had blocked me from using any of the photographers, which was good sport, you know, fair. Anyway, after New York Woman, and while I was doing New York Woman, because I think that was a year and a half, he called me in his office and he proposed to me to become the design director, art director of American Vogue. And I refused. I turned it down. Why? I turned it down because I felt the magazine was not in the right place. It was not the right moment. I didn't feel like the editor was doing the right job at the time. And I always felt like you have to work for the right editor. If it's not the right editor, it's not going to be right. Even though like, you're in the right position, you get the right title, you're in the right place. But if the editor is not good, it's not going to be good. And the story. And at the time, it was Grace Mirabella, and I think she felt like she was on the last leg. And I think he wanted me there to help out, to redesign the magazine, to give it a boost, to do something with it. For Grace. And I felt like, wait a minute, if I go there and this is not happening, it's not going to go well. And that's, that's it. You know, I turned him down. And it was quite ballsy of me to do that because, you know, like, usually you don't turn down Alex Lieberman. And it, w- it was a little bit upset. Then a week or so after that, I got a phone call. And I don't know if it was related through Mr. Lieberman or not. But I got a phone call f- from friends, from French Vogue. They were asking me to be the art director of French Vogue. And I turned it down as well. I felt like I didn't want to go back to Paris, giving up on America now because like the, you know, going back to France would have been like you have to go back, you have to be there, you know, like it's not like it is now like you can work from from anywhere on the planet with a computer. Uh you have to be physically present to make something happen. And I was really not in the mood from that to be back in Paris. And work again in Paris. It was too early. It was, I think, like four years or three and a half years after I was in, in New York. And I didn't feel like I, I had, like, maybe in New York yet. So yeah. so I, I turned it down. And, uh, you know, like, again, I was not liking what French folk looked like. And I was not liking what was going on with that magazine at the time for wh- whichever reason.
0: Did Alexander Lieberman think that you were crazy turning down both French Vogue and American Vogue?
2: I didn't discuss it with him, but I remember
0: <laughs> Did your friends and family think you were crazy? Yes. Uh
2: yes. <laughs> My friends that, you know, that worked in the business and everything say, My God, you're crazy. You you just turned down two Vogues. That's that's insane. You're crazy. Like you should have taken that first one. You should have taken American Vogue. Nevertheless, two weeks later or three weeks later, I got a phone call from Fra- Franca Solsani, who was just hired to redo Italian Vogue.
0: And that I took on the spot. Because of Franca? Because of the opportunity with Italian Because
2: Vogue. of the editor, because exactly because of the editor, because Franca was someone that was really admiring for what she had done at Le and Pearl Louis. And she was doing such a good job. We were using the same photographers. You know, she was using Steven Mazel I was using Steven Mazel, You know, like she was using Peter. I was using Peter. Like we, we were using that. We had, I felt we had the same vision about things. And she was like a, a real true renegade in the way she would approach a magazine. And to me, that makes sense. This Like that part is like, Oh my God, I can't believe she's calling me. She was the one I was really like admiring. So it was not difficult for me to say yes. I didn't even think about it. I said, yes. She said like, you know, like, so would you come to Milan and work? Yes. I I took the job on the spot. I didn't even think if it was complicated, if it would be Paniñas to be in Italy. I just took the job because it made sense. What was interesting in all this, in the, the whole process is to turn down two Vogues to get a third one and to get the right one at the moment, because Italian Vogue was the right one at the moment. Because what happened is afterwards, Grace Mirabella got fired from American Vogue. So that would have been my loss. French Vogue, the same thing happened at French Vogue. Someone replaced whomever was the editor at the time. And the whole thing collapsed and Italian Vogue On the contrary, it was like a huge success and a new thing. So sometimes you you really have to follow your guts and your feelings about something and not get impressed by names and by surroundings just because. So I'm glad I made that decision.
0: Did you think that you'd be able to have more impact working with Franca at Italian Vogue?
2: Oh, totally. Totally. Because I think like she gave me carte blanche in the way the magazine could look. But she gave me carte blanche. But everything she was saying was bringing my ears like some like amazing music. Everything she was saying was right on the money, and she really was the one that opened my vision and allowed my vision to be expressed in a very very direct way on the page of a magazine. She really was the first one who said, "Okay." Do it. And she was behind me and she pushed me. She didn't settle for halfway. And all the people around around her in her team, like Grazia D'Annunzio, that was the editor in chief at the time for the you know, like the editorial part of the magazine. Everybody at the magazine were thinking the same. So you felt part of a team, and that boat was led by Franca Sozzani in a way that it was impeccable. And we were perfect team going forward, going with the same goal and all in the same direction. And that that was like, you know, it paid off. Franca became definitely the most thought-after editor in the world for fashion and style. And she had a way of putting things together that were unlike anyone else.
0: Those magazines now are really considered collector's items. Oh, totally. The magazine sort of became a laboratory for edgy experimental photography and design. And you stated that when you were working with Franca is really when you learned about fashion. And I was wondering if if you could share what what was the biggest thing she taught you?
2: Well, I remember with Franca, she would take me around to see all the designers. And I would go to the shows with her and like, you know, she would take me around and have the discussion. I remember when we first did, we did the first issue, she said, okay, come with me. And we're going with the magazine to see Mr. Armani. So we went to Mr. Armani and like we presented the magazine to him and she was talking all in Italian. I was understanding a little bit of it. I learned Italian afterwards. But it was really interesting to be put directly into the people that were making the fashion, like the designers, to be really working directly with them and to be part of the fashion system so directly. I think, like, you know, like the way she was working, she was working in unison with all the designers. She would, like, you know, like do all those stories on them. And, like, she was, like, really, like... How can I say, like, she was, it's like, you know, she was like the, the head of a table and she would like, you know, kind of like deal the cards, mm-hmm. you know, and for designers being in internal Vogue was very important. It meant a lot. And to have uh, certain photographers shoot their story and their clothes, I think was very important at the time. Uh, it was really meaningful. And she was, she was holding the, that deck of cards and she would play hard. And um, she was really like a, a good leader in that. She was the voice of Italian fashion, yeah, in many in many ways. And you know, to be in contact with her directly there, with all what it meant, with all the people that is market editors, like it, it is like you know like the fashion editors, or it is like all the people working for the designers, like you would understand the structure and how fashion was built. It was, you know, like I remember going to Miuccia Prada and having this discussion with Franca there and Miuccia talking to Franca in Italian saying like, ah, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to do a, a women's collection, you know, to Franca. And she was doing bags only at the time and like she had taken the bi- the business from, from her parents. And I remember very clearly the discussion she had with Franca and I was there. And like, and I remember, like, I asked her, like, you know, I mean, if you ask me, I would say, of course you should do it. Mm-hmm. Of course you should do it. <laughs> because me, you know, I'm a French guy that lived in America and come work in Italy. You can do anything. Everything's possible. I also told her, like, yeah, you, I think it's great that you do clothing. Why not? And she was, like, you know, and that's how, like, you know, she, like that. Franca was involved in this type of discussion with the designers. So... I think she was really like, when you see like someone like Mutia Prada, who had such an influence in the world of fashion, she she had that importance. You know, I remember meeting with Dolce Gabbana. I remember like, uh, you know, meeting with everyone.
0: Heady time.
2: It, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. It was two years. But after two years of that, of being at The Talent Vogue, I think it was really difficult for me to go back and forth and to still deal with my clients. I had some freelance clients in, in New York. I was like two weeks here, two weeks there. And like, you know, at the time, I mean, it's not like I was flying business or, you know, like it was not easy. It was very, it was much more complicated. You had to be hands-on and like I would be in Italy two weeks and I had to get my life there and like, you know, and but I was also like in New York and it was it was complicated. It was complicated. And after two years of it, I left and Vogue, to pursue um, other things.
0: Baron and Baron was born in 1990. You came back to the United States.
2: Yeah, that was after Interview Magazine. Yeah. So I went back, basically, and my friend, Glenn O'Brien, said, oh, you know, they're looking for someone at Interview Magazine. And I thought, and it's a new editor, Ingrid Sishi." She was at Artforum. Would you be interested? And... I took the job.
0: And you've had a a real on-again, off-again relationship with the magazine. She first hired you in 1990, Ingrid, but she fired you a year or so later because, this is what I've read, uh, the graphics were dominating the magazine.
2: (laughs) Yes, I guess.
0: (laughs) And then in 2008, you returned with Glenn (laughs) O'Brien and took on the editorial director role, which you had until 2018. Um, What was that first year and a half like working to reinvigorate Andy Warhol's magazine?
2: Well, that was a very interesting time in the the life of the magazine because, like, Andy Warhol had just died and Ingrid Sissi was taking over the magazine and we wanted it to be different. So I don't think me and Ingrid got along really well, like, in the direction in which the magazine was supposed to go. We didn't see eye to eye. And that's where I was like missing like Franca Sozzani. I was making f- missing Fra- Franca like for uh, how like distinctive and how like precise and how on point she was. And how like I felt like everything she was saying like was, oh yeah, that's golden. That's okay. That's working. That's working. When on the other hand, Ingrid's ideas, I didn't feel were applicable for magazines in the same way. Shed an approach that was not something I was understanding. It was not my cup of tea, by, you know, in, in a way. But still, it was interesting because, you know, like graphically and the way the magazine looked was interesting. So I was fine with that. But I guess she didn't think it was fine. I guess we didn't get along. I mean, we didn't fight. But she didn't understand what I was about. And I don't think I really appreciated what she was about either. At the time, we got to know each other better after. She was still at interview. I was, I think, at Bazaar by then. And, you know, like, I grew to respect her. And she grew to respect me as well. We had different point of views. And, and that's fine. And that's why it's important, like, to go back to the point of view. For a good magazine, one point of view. You cannot have different points of view. That's when the magazine becomes schizophrenic and ununderstandable for people. And I guess like when that first interview I did, even though like I really liked what it looked like, it didn't make sense for what it was, for what she wanted to do. So I think like uh, it was better we didn't continue together.
0: Was that the first time you'd ever been fired?
2: Yeah, it was. It was a strange feeling. I was upset at first, but then um, whatever, like we had to move on. Uh, and that's where, right away, like, you know, like I started my company. Right. Like the, the day I left interview, I started my company because I was doing a lot of freelance anyway. So at uh, had clients, I was doing Barney's, Valentino advertising, some Giorgio Armani advertising. I had met all these designers in Italy and I was like doing a lot of freelance for them. And with all the other things, I felt like, let me start my company. Like, you know, I, maybe I don't want to work for magazines. Magazines are complicated they really take everything under your feet. They really like grab all your energy that they require a tremendous amount of work and they're not that good. So like I was really disappointed with magazine in a certain way. So I said like, I'm not going to work for magazine again. I'm going to start my company. I started my company, got successful right away, which was good. And I'd moved on. I moved on, quite rapidly and you know I remember like going to the shows and seeing Ingrid and eh, I was fine hello Ingrid how are you blah 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 and we, and didn't all the grunge you know and like I was I was fine I had moved on and that's when I got the phone call for Opera's Bazaar yeah after I think a, a year after I left the interview something like that right
0: before before we get to Bazaar I want to talk to you about just a few projects that you did back at the beginning of Baron and Baron one of your first jobs was with Issey Miyake and you designed his first fragrance and you've said that fragrances are the strangest accounts to work on that they are the most abstract form of advertising that there is and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you feel that way
2: well at the time you know when you say cold I know that Issei loved what I was doing at uh, Italian Vogue. He said he, he was like really like impressed in the way I was putting the magazine together. And he said, like, we got to find a way to work together. I said, sure, lovely, that'd be great. Then I started my company. Then I got a phone call from him. I said, Fabian, have you ever, you know, like, we should work together. Have you ever done a fragrance bottle? I said, no, I've never done that. But that must be so interesting. Uh, but I'd love to do it i'd love to yeah I love fragrance i love the i love the object by itself is really it's the item that most people or, or a lot of people get access to i find it a very democratic you know like it's one of the first things you can buy from a designer brand is the fragrance or lipstick or you know makeup or Beauty item, and I felt I was really interesting to participate into the vision of a designer, and t- into creating this object that, if successful, can becomes quite cult, right? Mm-hmm. And generational. I mean, I was thinking at the time like Chanel f- Number Five. Oh my God, what did he do for Chanel? Like it's unbelievable. So I was I was really 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 intrigued by the question of issey miyake and a bottle. So you know, like you said, like can you come to Paris? I said sure, I can come to Paris. He put me on the plane, and I was in Paris. And like uh, basically, like uh, we we talked, and I went on to design the bottle,
0: which is one of the most successful and long running designs and fragrances of our time and you've since designed over 40 different bottles for 40 different fragrances and have stated that one of the problems with developing a new fragrance is the name and have jokingly stated that all that's left are names like thief, memory, jealousy and pirate. (laughs) (laughs) Have we actually run out of names?
2: (laughs) It's 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 incredible like to name a fragrance is so complicated. Actually, I think the name Jealousy ev- ev- could be ev-
0: interesting. <laughs> no, Jealousy
2: is not bad, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Maybe envy. So, And I'm sure, but you know what? I'm sure that name is taken. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Someone owns it. Like every single word in the dictionary is taken.
0: It's crazy. So
2: either you go to whomever owns it and buy it back, or, you know, you kind of like put words together. Ultimate Jealousy. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> shades, of um, yeah, shades of jealousy. Yeah,
2: shades of jealousy. But it's naming a fragrance is very is is a nightmare, and I've I've named a few, and it's a nightmare. It's really, it's really naming me, anything never... is a
0: nightmare. I've named some pharmaceuticals, and
2: it's a nightmare. Oh yeah, you no, know, but like the words, the yeah. words are taken. Yep. words are taken, and the, you know, like that's. Uh, You know, like something visual, like you can do something new. It's not like you can invent a word, even though like the car industry, that's what they do. Yeah, That's why some industries, they have to invent words that don't exist. Right.
0: That's the easiest way now to create a name is to just make something up that has never been uttered. Uh, Oftentimes, though, that's hard because it ends up sounding so foreign that nobody really has any attachment to it.
2: Yes. And like the, you know, the problem with the fragrance is like, you know, it needs to strike on an emotional level immediately. So, and so that's the tricky part. Like any emotion in the dictionary is taken for sure. Right. 15 times around by 15 brands.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, you also helped Calvin Klein relaunch, because I, I also didn't know at the time that uh, his fragrance had launched to very little fanfare. You helped him relaunch CK1, and then went on to help shape everything for Calvin for several decades. F- Fabian, is it true you introduced Calvin to Kate Moss?
2: Yes, I did. What happened with Calvin, he called me when I was at Opera's Bazaar, and he asked me to do his logo. He said, I need a logo to put on the back of the jeans. And I want it to say CK. Can you come up with something? And I designed that CK logo. And he liked it very much. And uh, that's how my relationship started with him. And then he started to say, well, can you look at, different colors, that logo, because if we do on the back, no, no. so I came up with a whole range of colors and all, you know, like a whole thing. And then he called me for something else and then another thing. And then, oh, can you look? No, 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 no. We are doing a jeans campaign. Blah, blah, blah. And I started working on the campaign. It went gradually, but like surely in the space of like uh, six months, I came from not knowing Calvin Klein into almost living with Calvin Klein. It was an amazing experience because this guy, I just think like him. Mm. I just loved <laughs> everything he was saying. It's so like, I know what you st- I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're saying. And he was like so unafraid to try things that were not the proper thing to do. To do things in a way that were very visible, but with an extreme sense of aesthetism. Mm-hmm and a very precise way to execute it. He understood media. He understood how to communicate visually a dream that people wanted.
0: How did Kate Moss fit into that dream? Because she was quite an unusual model for that time. She was not the face you would have associated with high fashion. She was short not short as in in the grand scheme of things, but shorter than most models.
2: What happened is we had put Kate Moss um, in the first issue of Harper's Bazaar, in our first issue. We had leaned down the cover, but Kate Moss opened the first story of Bazaar. So she was like, um, she was already, you know, like Bazaar's mascot. And then Calvin called me again. and said like, oh, Fabian, like, I would love to use Vanessa Paradis for my jeans ad, but she turned me down. You wow. Know? and I and I look at Vanessa Paradis, and I look and, and I look at that picture that he had showed me. So it was a picture of Vanessa Paradis sitting down on the gray background and kind of like uh you know, like crouching down with a pair of jeans and a white shirt. I think she was a over t-shirt, or something. And she was just like slouchy and And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, okay. I brought him Kit Moss. And what I did is I I told Kit Moss to come in the room and say like, can you sit like on the floor just like that picture? And she sat on the floor just like that picture in front of Calvin Klein. And Calvin Klein turned to me and go, (laughs) look, it goes like this. I said, yeah, yeah, see? And he hired her.
0: And history was made.
2: He loved her. But also, like, the thing is, like, Kate at the time was, like, there was something, like, very innocent about her, but there was something very mischievous about her. There was, like, everything. She was, like, um, a flower about to explode. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it. And she was oozing cool by just being there, whatever she was doing. She could sit. She could like stand. She could like the way she would move, like she was who's in cool. And Calvin went crazy on her, like in a second, put on the contract immediately, and that was it. That was Cat Moss and Calvin Klein moment.
0: She's written about how everyone thought she should fix her teeth, but you. What did people think were wrong with her teeth? I don't know. I don't know. I
2: said, Kat, you're crazy. I love your teeth. Like, that's part of you. Don't change it. Her beauty is her imperfections. Right. Her beauty is that she's petite. Her beauty is like, she has a little bit shorter legs. Her beauty is that she's a little, little bit that smile. She's a bit crooked. She's a bit like, you know, like, is imperfection. I'm making her, you know, this most amazing person. And her soul is worn on outside. Yeah. And that you read that, you know, and that's what you see. So you, you charmed. You definitely charmed by her.
0: She wrote a wonderful, wonderful um, forward to your monograph um, yes, about about, about so nice. your sort of comrades and being mischievous together, which is yes, really lovely. Yes. So you've mentioned Harper's Bazaar a few times. I remember the day I got my. Harper's Bazaar, that your first Harper's Bazaar, Welcome to the Age of Elegance, with the A sort of in Linda Evangelista's hand. It is one of the most glorious magazine relaunches of our time. You worked with the legendary editor, the great, the late great Elizabeth Tilberis. You and Liz completely revived Harper's Bazaar and, in doing so, created what many believe to be the most beautiful magazine in history. You've said that Liz Tilberis's real talent was that she was not scared of talent. Yes. Do you find that people in leadership positions are fearful or intimidated by grace, greatness? Yes. Especially in the Definitely. fashion industry, I would imagine, where it's so, holding onto a job is so hard.
2: I think a lot of people in the business see talent as a competition to their point of view. I think Liz was smart enough to surround herself with very, very talented people and she would take everybody's point of view and make it her point of view. <laughs> That's where she was amazing. And the only thing you wanted to do in her, all, all her abilities to do anything, she would do that with a smile and with lots of love. And the only thing you wanted to do is to please list the mm, best yeah and to give her what she wanted but l- she would let you use your own talent to achieve that and that's amazing she didn't ask you to be someone else
0: how competitive was harper's bazaar at the time with the redesign and relaunch of vogue that was happening with anna wintour
2: it was it was war <laughs> <laughs> It was war. I mean, like, you know, like, (laughs) I think like um, the number of contracts between erst publications and condenast publications for the photographers, the fight we had to get to the photographers because I understood that, you know, we needed the photographers. It was really, really the most competitive time in magazine making probably that ever existed. And I, I did enjoy it. And yeah. I think we, we, we gave winter a run for our money. Oh, for without sure.
0: a doubt. How did she react to Linda Evangelista being on the cover of Harper's Bazaar?
2: She didn't like it because, like, the minute Harper's Bazaar was happening, the veto was, the condenas veto was, like, imposed. Yeah. It was like, this is it. This is war. And, you know, like, and the models, like, the models wouldn't give up. So, we had to do like what to do with everything we had to do, what to put photographers under contract, have to talk to models, what to talk to everyone. You got to do it. Like It's very important. We're going to put you on the cover. Will you do it? Like, everybody was petrified to go against Condenast, right. but we did it. And you
0: did it well. The interesting thing about Harper's Bazaar under your tenure with Liz was that it, it sort of juxtaposed two words that you generally didn't see together it was elegantly provocative. You know, you were able to be controversial and edgy, but also at the same time, very elegant and, and almost formal mm. in that. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I read that one of your mottos, um, and I don't know if it still is, but one of your mottos at the time was to minimize maximally. And I was wondering if you can talk about how you know when something is minimized maximally. <laughs>
2: Yeah. wow
0: <laughs> I said that? <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes <laughs> well you know I think I'm deep down I'm a minimalist and yet you know like fashion I mean like bazaar came about in the grunge years so where fashion became kind of like more poor and more normal and more like real and uh, but then after that you know glam- glamour came came about again so well fashion is not Automatic, it's kind of a maximal thing. It's not plain and simple, if you see what I mean, like, yeah. right? Um, even though you have like some Jill Sanders and people like that, like, you know, that embrace that type of fashion. But in general, it's, it's a world that is, is not subtle. I mean, bizarre, we try to stay somewhere classic, therefore understandable. Yet, I mean, we pushed it quite far. In some of the ideas that were kind of like extreme, so it was extreme yet it was classic. So there was always that balance, and elegance was always part of the game. That it needed to be absolutely beautiful. Like we, I felt like you could you could package any idea as long, even if it was an art concept or something difficult to understand, if it was packaged in a beautiful way, yeah, people would understand it better. It would be closer to them. They would be more acceptable. So. Maybe that's what I call minimal maximalism.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Minimized maximally. (laughs) Liz Tilberis um, very tragically died of cancer. You left shortly thereafter because you were so heartbroken. Glenda Bailey took over and it was recently announced that she would be leaving after many decades. A new editor has just been announced. I read that you were in the consideration for the editor-in-chief position. Is that true?
2: Uh, Yeah, that's what I heard too, but I never got a phone call. So I (laughs) think it's all... Yeah,
0: all these different uh, rumors that go around.
2: (laughs) Yes. To be honest, I I would have not taken it. Yeah,
0: I I figured reading sort of some of your more recent thoughts, which we'll get to about the magazine business at that Didn't seem likely that you'd want to do it, but back to the 90s, um, one of my other favorite projects that you worked on around that time, and one that I also own, the French version, uh, is Madonna's sex book. Uh, Stephen Meisel was photographing the book, and both he and Madonna wanted you to art direct it. And in your 2019 monograph, you talk about how one of the objectives was to give um, it the right kind of quote-unquote, crazy tabloid elegance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't make it too wild-looking without making it look cheap. And you, if you mm-hmm. made it look too crazy, the, the right crazy, you had to ensure that the crazy was not going to be sort of ridiculous. How crazy was it to work on that job? And what did you think of the ensuing hysteria over
2: that, the? I mean, I had a great time. I had a fabulous, great time working with her. She was unbelievable. She was so...
0: I mean, was she naked most of the time?
2: She was naked. Yeah, not most of the time. <laughs> yeah, Some of the time she was definitely naked. Yeah. I, didn't bother me. Didn't bother me at all. Well,
0: uh, yeah, I would think the, I mean, the opposite. I'm French, right? <laughs> I'm French, <laughs> <count> fabulous! So. <laughs> but there was a lot of nudity. It was just nudity everywhere. Did it ever sort of get um,
2: lurid? No, no, I don't think so. I think, like, you know, we took it as a job. Yeah. It was like, you know, it's like I was working on a film or something like that. Like, I think, like, when you're on set and you have all these people, I mean, nudity is not something that is intriguing, really, to be honest. It's a job. Yeah. So you look at it as a job. You don't look at oh my god, she's naked or this. You know, we didn't care. Like we were here to do something, and being on set, like you know, doesn't allow other thoughts. You know, what I mean, so no, it didn't bother me one bit.
0: There was a lot of Robert Maplethorpe influenced S and M, BDSM.
2: They were, yeah. I
0: mean, like she she wanted to cover
2: a little bit of everything yeah. she wanted to have that that bit the SNM bit she wanted the weirdness she wanted the underground she wanted the overtly pop culture she wanted like the all the different aspects of sex she wanted to cover everything and i've i mean to be honest I've, i found like it was it was treated like a like a journal in a mm-hmm. way like a thoughts a thought process and the visuals were like Some of them very sophisticated, some of them very trashy, some of them very pop, some of them very cartoonish, some of them very hard, some of them like there was everything in it. It was like a, you know, like a a collage of all these different visions done and packaged again by the same people, like a photographer, an art director and a writer, Glenn O'Brien, myself and Stephen Mazzell. And... You know, like these different expressions of the subject matter, I mean, ended up being like the package was like together in a good way. It, it held together nicely. He had a voice, the whole thing had had a voice and a point of view and like visually, uh, it was really controlled and really and really fun in many
0: ways. Yeah, I think it's and still... And a scandal. Oh, my God, and a, and a scandal. scandal. When it I came mean, out. I couldn't, you couldn't oh find it. I, I was finally able to get the French copy. I could not get an English copy. I got a French copy, which I still have. I was so enthralled with that book, Fabian, that at that time, you know, the Internet and email and all of that was first taking off usernames. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used the name <laughs> Dita as my username. <laughs> Madonna's name in the book was Dita. I used that name. I thought, yeah. I just remembered that as we were talking. I was so <laughs> enthralled with it. But really, as racy as it was and as controversial as it was, and looking back on it now, it doesn't seem that way, but then it was. Every single photograph is beautiful. Every single yes. photograph is beautiful in that book.
2: Well, Stephen, myself. Yeah.
0: In your monograph, published by Faden, it's a 400 plus page stunning exploration of 30 years of your own work. And one thing that surprised me in reading it is your statement that when you were younger, you really loved being controversial and you were never afraid. And today you find yourself to be more careful. And I'm wondering what is behind that change?
2: I mean, if you see what's going on politically, don't you think you have to be careful? Okay. Okay,
0: I see.
1: Well, I wasn't sure if you <laughs> meant
0: taking, I mean, like, taking creative risks or being less maybe politically correct or...
2: Well, I, I don't think it's a good moment for that. I don't think it's, it's the, the climate doesn't allow controversy. I think controversy is not read as controversy. Controversy is read as something extremely offensive and actually can put your carrier down today. So you have to think really twice about before you say something, before you do something a certain way, before you use certain visuals. You have to think about everything. Everything is, can become, you know, like a weapon against you. Mm. So you have to, to be very careful, I think. And it's, somewhere it's good. In many ways it's good and it's necessary. In other ways it's less good. It takes out a lot of the creative factor. There's a innocent, I mean, uh, it's never innocent, like when you do something, but there's a certain innocence in, cre- in creation that doesn't put automatically things that you say or do in context of political or geosociological environment of a certain time. Mm. And I find, you know, like certain artists don't live in their time. Yet they get judged per the environment and the context in which they work, and that could really endanger their vision. This kind of you know like um, restrictions,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, or self restrictions uh, one one has to put on themselves to to certain degree. So being controversial today, I don't, n- n- no, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's very risky. There's that reason, and the other reason is I guess. You learn that. I think you, when you're younger, you, you want to shake the tree. You want to bother the people that are older. You want to create your own little revolution. And then you become wiser and. You don't want to shake the tree. You actually want to protect the tree. You want to uh, make sure it's streamed properly. You want to make sure it gets water. You want to make sure there's all the other things you want want to care, you know, and you want maybe pass along a knowledge that you've amassed through the years and you want to pass that along to someone else. So your behavior, your mental behavior is shifting and changing. So that's the second part of this.
0: Yeah. You've stated that the era of the fashion magazine has come to an end. Why do you feel that way?
2: It feels that way because if you see magazines, I mean, like, do people look at magazines still? Do people buy magazines? Do we feel in the age of technology, in the age of, you know, portable phone, tablets, you know, anything, you know, like digital, do you feel that turning the page of magazine is something relevant for today? Or is it better to swipe?
0: What do you think?
2: I think it's about swiping. It's not about turning pages of a magazine, to be honest.
0: Do you think that...
2: You may turn the page of a book.
0: Mm-hmm. But do you think that... But of a
2: magazine... I find magazine not relevant in my, my, in my mind. I, I don't find them, you know, even though I miss them. Yeah. I do miss putting a magazine together. I miss working with photographers on editorial stories. But I don't feel it's relevant. I don't, I don't feel it's the proper tool to communicate fashion today.
0: Do you still subscribe to a lot of magazines? No. Which ones do you still subscribe <laughs> to? Could you share? No. no. No, I don't. Oh, none. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe. No, I don't. I used I, to, and to I subscribe. Look. I had a subscription to vote for, for 18 years. Like I just, like mm-hmm. I paid for it and there was a glitch with the, with the payment and then it, I, had, I repaid and then all of a sudden I'd been Bon Appetit, took over from House and Garden, so I got the balance put on Vogue. I had it for 18 years and then it stopped and I don't miss it. As I, I still think about it and I'll look at it online and from time to time, but I don't miss it. I don't know if it's because Grace Coddington left, I don't know, but it's just not the same.
2: I think it's it's different time. Mm-hmm. I think what we were doing at the time in the 90s, that was relevant. It felt like it was something.
0: It felt like there was a connection. When Dominique Browning was editor of House and Garden, I, the first thing I would read was her editorial. The last magazine for me to go was Harper's Bazaar.
2: It's the talent of all this. Like I think people are just hanging on the branches, like desperately try to still hang on the ma you know, like... I don't know. I'm not into it. It's funny. Like it's a, I think, I I think to do something that, that makes sense, it needs to be relevant. It needs to be a medium that is relevant. I'm way more intrigued into like, I mean, with all my clients, we don't talk about the page that's going to go in vogue. We talk about like the Instagram post. I hate to say this. Hmm. And even though I'm not, it's a shame that it is the Instagram post, but it's what it's about. So, my question that I put to myself now is like, I'm gonna make that Instagram post much better than all the other Instagram posts. I'm gonna make this relevant, I'm gonna make this work, and now I'm gonna make this like important. And that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Do you enjoy it as much?
2: It's different. To, uh, it's, it's, very, it's a different um process, it's a different exercise. And do I enjoy it as much? I don't know. I, I don't even ask myself the question because I think like you learn through, you know, working. I've been working so much. You realize that most of what you do is problem solving, problem solving, you know, that it is on the page or on the screen or on the billboard or on in a book or, you know, like on the, on, you know, as a moving image, it's, it's you problem solving. And I became. You know, a problem solver.
0: Mm, baby, and I don't think so. I think that you became a problem maker for other people because your work was so much better, <laughs> and that's what I think great designers do. You know, no, even in really, you're trying to not. do when you're trying to make an Instagram post that's better than anybody else's that has never been done before, you're a problem maker for everybody else that can't.
2: Well, I don't, I don't know about that, but I know that's what I do all day long. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm being put like in front of a problem by a client and I'm trying to resolve the issues that and try to make the best solution out of it. And it's n- listen, there's nothing wrong with that. And I enjoy that. It's kind of like, you know, like great math problem. <laughs> it's also interesting. But it's true, like the things have shifted. It's not it's not about magazine. Is it about a book? It it could still be about the magazine that are treated a little bit more like an object, something that is less throwaway. Right. I'm talking about, like, maybe the bi-annual magazines.
0: Mm-hmm. Visionaire. You know, like pur-
2: Purple, like the, all this, you know.
0: Are you aware of Stack Magazines? It's a subscription service out of the UK, and they curate sending indie magazines once a month really, really, really well done and I love getting them. They're they're never large circulation magazines, but it's really interesting to see what some people are doing. So is it I'll send you a link. It's Stack Magazines. They they pick the magazine, you get what they pick once a month, you get an, a magazine. That's interesting. It's really great. And then you sort of stay on top of you
2: get an object, you get the object an object. To the, ma- the actual oh, okay. object.
0: Yeah the actual magazine. And there are some extraordinary efforts being made these days. They're small, but they're really, really good.
2: Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure, I mean, I think, you know, I'm talking about magazine as a large, with a large audience, like the Vogue, the Bazaar, like that level of magazine, like, you know, ultimately, like, you, we love the, the small independent magazines because they have a voice and they have a point of view and they have, you know, something they want to say. But at the same time, they do it with no money and they let the photographers run with the ball and, you know, they, they undermine themselves before, you know, just to get like certain people inside yeah. the, their magazine. So it's a little bit of free for all. And then, on the other hand, the very commercial magazine is the opposite. You have to do exactly what they want, as if you were doing advertising. And your voice as a, a collaborator is is not appreciated, or like you you're here to fill in the gap. You know, so uh, it's one or the other. I think I don't think there's any place where you feel like the collaboration and the point of view from the team inside the magazine is forward in a way that is, you know, like, meaningful. Yeah. You know, I I don't know a magazine like that today.
0: The one magazine I still really enjoy reading, both online and in hand, is The New Yorker. I still think that they're doing...
2: Well, that's... They were very smart. Yeah. The way they did it, through, like, uh, subscriptions. Mm -hmm. They decided, like... It's not about the advertising, it's about, like, the quality mm-hmm. of the product and, the, and mm-hmm. you know, for that quality, you're going to pay a certain amount of money to get the magazine. Yeah. And it paid off for them. I mean, it's the one magazine at Condenasta is that is successful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good. In your monograph, you state that while you've devoted most of your life to becoming a good art director, you now want to dedicate the rest of what time you have left to film and photography. Tell me why.
2: Well, I think, like, like I said, it goes all the way back to my dad. I've learned art direction because I think he was an art director. He would have been a filmmaker. I would be in film, you mm. know. So I realized that all the mediums are very much their own thing. And it's your point of view mixing with that medium that creates something exceptional. That it is magazine, building a house, painting sculptures, filmmaking, photography. I think it's all the same. I think what what you have to say is the important part. And how you're going to say it is also the important part. And the medium in which you communicate these thoughts is just that medium. It has its own vocabulary, it has its own language. So it's a little bit like, a, you know, like let's say if magazine is French, you know, film is English. It's another language. It's like learning another language. But basically what you have to say is the same. You know, like most big artists, they just repeat themselves. Add the luck to be able to play with different mediums and to passed from one medium to the other, from magazines into books, into fragrance, into furniture, and into film. I've done film for about 25 years now. Uh, A lot of commercials, started doing most commercials. One of my first commercials was for Giorgio Armani, and then on for Calvin Klein, like I did many, many, many for Calvin Klein, and on and on and on. It's just like love film.
0: Uh, what you did for Montclair, love, love. by the way, was extraordinary. Oh thank you. If you can ex- I, I tried to write a little explanation in anticipation of asking you some questions about it, but I, I decided that it might be easier for you to just share with my listeners what you actually did for Montclair and that magnificent film in the icebergs.
2: Actually the iceberg thing was was a project that I had in my head for a long time. I went to it was part of my sea pictures, and I was always, always intrigued by ice and by icebergs and these amazing landscapes that felt like they were another planet. And uh, so I went to Greenland once, and I took my camera. And my I have a special technique when I when I do pictures. That I do very long exposures, and then when I went to very, very long exposure, sometimes three, four minutes. And I took my big camera at the time, like it was an eight by 10 camera, and went, schlepped it all the way to Greenland and realized when I stand on land and the iceberg are uh, actually moving. And I get my pictures back from my trip in Greenland and you barely see it by with the eye. I mean, you see like the little eyes moving back, but the big things, you say like that, that thing's not moving, right? But then you get the picture back and you see a little blur and it's, you like, oh, everything is a bit blurry. Oh my God. Like, and I've been, you know, I said, I love this. How, how can I take a picture of an iceberg that is not something that looks like an amazing picture from National Geographic, that feels like my picture and that has that amazingness, like something like special. And the only thing I could think about is that like, you need to lit the whole thing. You need to lit it like a, a theater stage, like you would lit like a street or something, because it's big. Right,
0: but there are no electrical outlets out in the uh, Arctic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> yes. So I said, "Oh my God, that's complicated. That's requires a big production." Da And then you know, so years passed by, and uh, Remo calls me and said, "Like I love you pictures. I love you pictures of the sea." They, is there something you... What, what would you do? Like, if, if I would ask you to do something for me, what would you do? And I go, oh, you know what? I know exactly
0: what I would do. Especially given the brand. I, I would do... I would, Warm
2: coats. I would do, I, I would do icebergs. I would go to Greenland and shoot icebergs, but I would lit everything at night. And he said, okay, let's do it. And basically, you allowed that dream to happen. That's amazing. That was the most... Amazing journey and the most amazing job I was ever, ever assigned. I love that job. Me, the fashion guy, being lost in Greenland, minus 20 degrees, you know, with my camera and my huge strobes, like massive strobes that were on boats, on other boats, and trying to take these pictures of icebergs, like it was heaven. I mean, like, thank you, Rainbow, for this. It was like really... Extraordinary experience. It, w- it was really great.
0: Is there anyone in the fashion or publishing business that you haven't worked for that could cajole you to work for them? I, I doubt it. <laughs> I'm, 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 what a, what no, a position. To be, to be entirely honest, yeah. I think like,
2: you know, like we were talking about film. We were talking about, you know, like what I've learned through the years working in magazines. You learn how to build a story. You learn how to make stories. You learn how to become a narrator. Then as I worked in film and doing commercial, you learn that same spirit of narrative, but you deal with visuals. You deal with the art direction. You deal with air makeup. You deal with sound. You deal with special effects. You deal with color. You deal with movement. You deal with action. You deal with so many other layers, I find the film the most complete method of expression that to me is relevant for what I want to say today. So I've put, to be honest, most of my efforts towards that lately. You know, and, and I do a lot of films. I do about 20 different films per year that I direct. And I'm about to launch into a feature film and you know, like, I I'm, mean, I'm it works with that. So, that it, this is something that's going to happen. And that's what is next for me, to be honest. That is what is going to replace, definitely is going to replace the magazine. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing, but it's just bigger. Right. It's just bigger. It's a bolder and more, you know, it's, and the narrative is bigger and like the expression is bigger. And there's, you know, like, I'm someone, with ultimate control in everything I do. And what I love about film is that you spend months and months trying to put something together that is in total control. But the minute you say action and the film is rolling, you totally lost all the control. And all the magic starts to happen. So all these things that you put together... You're really calculating everything, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, you're going to say this, that's going to be said, you're going to say that word, you're going to be like this, the color is going to be like that, da da da. You say action and it's some, And it's like you're like a child in front of an image and something is happening in front of you that wow. Yeah. it's magic. And that, I think, is, to me, is the maximum. Yeah. So like, the I think that's where I'm going to focus the rest of my life into doing that and my photography work and hopefully exhibits and things like that of my work that I've been collecting for the past uh, 35 years without doing any exhibit, without doing any prints. I have like an archive that is huge and that I'm putting together and starting printing and like... So I'm going to start exhibiting. Oh, so those so two exciting. things. And I really, that's where I want to go.
0: Congratulations. That sounds magnificent.
2: So It's great. I'm, yeah. re- I'm really happy about that. It took me a long time. Yes,
0: it <laughs> seems to. To get to yeah, that, it, that That sort of seems to be the way it goes, I'm finding. Mm-hmm. My last question. How does your father feel about your career?
2: Well, my father passed away a couple of years ago, like about seven years, eight years ago. And he was very pleased. He was very pleased. Of course, we we were like this. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I can tell by your face how happy that makes you. We
2: were very, 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 very close. And I think like, I think for dad, you know, for someone like him that really fought all all his life to get where he was. And he was in a great place when he died. I think it was very, at first, threatening. Mm -hmm. I was threatening and then he, I think he embraced me, and then he really, like you know, supported me, and very much like uh, he totally embraced what I was doing, and and was very proud. Yeah. So he passed away, and uh, and uh, I miss him. I do.
0: And now you can infuse his work and yours into your four wonderful children.
2: Yes. I do.
0: (laughs) Fabian Barron, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for making the world a more provocative and elegant place. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. It's been an honor. It was
2: a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And thank you for having me. I had a really good time.
0: You can see more of Fabian Barron's work at barron com, And in his magnificent monograph, Fabian Barron Works 1983 to 2019. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by
0: Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School
2: of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary
1: Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.